Welcome to the Canadian SME Small Business Podcast, the go-to source for Canadian entrepreneurs and business leaders. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of Canada's business community, bringing you inspiring stories, cutting-edge insights, and practical advice from our nation's brightest minds in marketing, innovation, leadership, and tech. Whether you're launching a startup or scaling your enterprise, our mission is to empower your journey with wisdom that makes a difference. Let's grow together, right here, right now. Hi, everyone. This is Maheen, and welcome to the Canadian SME Small Business Podcast, a platform where the innovations, challenges, and successes of Canada's small and medium-sized enterprises are brought to you at the forefront. SMEs are the backbone of our national economy, embodying the spirit of entrepreneurship and community development. They account for a significant portion of employment and innovation in Canada, making their growth and sustainability crucial for our collective prosperity. In every episode, we focus on a vital aspect of our communities, emphasizing why supporting small businesses is essential for a thriving society. Today, we're delving into an inspiring story of innovation and determination in the biotech sector, exploring the journey of raising capital, the groundbreaking science of ending type 2 diabetes, and the unique challenges faced by SMEs in the healthcare industry. We're thrilled to have McLeod, CEO and co-founder of Cymar Limited, with us today. Mick is at the elm of a bio-research company that stands out on the brink of a scientific breakthrough with the potential to end the type 2 diabetes epidemic globally. Under Mick's leadership, Cymar has seen remarkable growth, developing unique products and attracting over 19 million in private investment. Mick's extensive experience as an entrepreneur, business development consultant, and leadership development specialist has been instrumental in guiding Saimar through various stages of funding, including an innovative approach to capital raising through Regulation A+. Join us as we dive into Mick's journey exploring the intersections of science, business, and community well-being. Good afternoon, Mick, and welcome to the Canadian SME Small Business Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. It's nice to be here. It's an honor to have you with us today, Make your journey from uh, with Saimar uh, from its founding in uh, Dauphin, Manitoba to becoming a trailblazer in the biotech industry. It's truly inspirational. And your approach to business, emphasizing, you know, creativity, sound decision making and community well-being resonates with many of our audience today. Now... Make every entrepreneur's journey is is quite unique. It's filled with, uh, you know, its own set of challenges and triumphs. Could you walk us through the early days of your entrepreneurial journey and what led you to co-found Saimar? Yeah, it's a great story. And it's funny, we we kind of call ourselves a startup 14 years in the making. And our our starting, our founding story is is quite, it's quite an adventure. So I grew up in a house with two university professors, uh, my mother in uh, social focused areas and my father in scientific research. And we, uh, I grew up listening to all these uh, interesting you know, uh, advances in science and discoveries and also the ups and downs of doing research in, you know, and, and trying to innovate and, and uh, you know, look for funding and all kinds of things. So it was an interesting uh, space to grow up. And I didn't really start paying too much attention to the science side of things until I was a little older. And there was a period of time where my father had made a major discovery and and he really started working with some accelerators and some some kind of, you know, consultants and such and trying to figure out, you know, how do we get this out to the world? 
you know, because he's a discovery scientist. His his mission was to change the world through knowledge and and bringing you know a breakthrough to 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 make the world a better place and and to kind of share the wealth, right? And and so he you know he he assumed that it was it was going to be kind of you know maybe giving it away a little bit or or finding partners that can take it and move to the next level and 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 somewhat straightforward. But he you know he really struggled, and I think. This 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 speaks to kind of the the a lot of business folks, uh, you know, when you've got something new and you're trying to change a paradigm, there's a lot of resistance along the way. And so, you know, he was really struggling on how do I get this out? I mean, it makes sense. We've got these these products that can that can make a difference. So, listening to that over the years and and listening to some of the business folks he was connecting with and, and really understanding what drove them, which was a lot about the money and kind of a pump and dump. Let's get in, let's get out, let's let's get some money out of this. And I thought, you know, this is a long term vision. This is a this is something that's really going to change the world, but it's got to be done right. It's got to be done with people that are aligned with the, the values and philosophies. It's got to be done with people that understand this is a more complicated play. So I, I was I was starting to raise my voice about, you know, here's some ideas and some opinions on on how I thought it might be able to to to, to move forward. And and I'd I'd already started four other businesses at the time. And so uh, I, w- I was interested in community building and wellness and awareness and leadership and all those types of things. So this was something I I started looking at this Go, you know, these are products that are really going to change the world. So this is a really important thing that we're doing here as a family. You need to move this. So he finally got, I think, just fed up of me giving a, opinions on things. And we said, well, let's sit down and talk about maybe we can do this ourselves as a family. And so we did sit down and my mother being, at the time, she was actually a, a lawyer and uh, as well out of her out of her social sciences background, then became a lawyer. And and my my father being the science science guy and me having some entrepreneurial experience and, and some business building experience, we decided we had what took to to bootstrap this thing and we founded the company and we we went on the road uh, we took a bus down to the US and my father presented some science and it was the first time that he was able to say at the end of that presentation you know if anybody's interested in the investment opportunity or the commercial side of things you know our CEO is in the room here and I waved my hand and well, I didn't really know what that commercial side of things looked like at the time mm-hmm. but you know here we were right so it it was really born out of necessity. We thought as a family, this was too important to hand off and we didn't want it to fail. And so it was a it was a really pivotal time for us to understand that we just made a multi-generation commitment to, you know, making sure that this breakthrough science got out to market and and made the difference that I think my father, as part of his legacy, had put his whole life into and his team, you know, really did. So that was uh the kind of the, the starting point. And then and then, you know, we bootstrapped it as a family for six, seven years as we really started to understand. How did we get intellectual property control? How did we build a, an investable structure? You know, what does it mean to go to market? You know, we've got four products we were designing and each one has its own category in the space. So it was a, it was a very complex project. So it was a real commitment on our side to tackle this as a family and 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 grow slowly, really lay some fo- solid foundations in terms of how we were going to move forward, what our mission was, what was going to really drive us and keep us on point. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then that's, yeah, that was our origin story. That is uh, one of the most, I think, inspirational, and we love the the uh, the motivation behind. Uh, you know, uh, you finding the the path to to Saimar and where it is today. Yeah. But reflecting on these uh, early beginnings, make what were some of the pivotal decisions or moments that helped mm. uh, that have helped you shape Saimar's path to where it is today? Well, geez, you know, there's been a lot, but I think. If I if I look back on some of the the real you know I can't really call them pivots but I think as a as a business and as a leader so in my role I I came in I said you know I'll be uh, I'll be the CEO I'll lead this 
this this company, this mission forward. And I had my CSO and I had my legal consultant and the founders and the strategic and everything else. But at a certain point, you know, we all get to a point when you're doing something difficult and and complicated that you realize you need other people involved, right? And I think there's a balance that there's a bit of art to understand how far you can go alone or with your core group. And then when it's important to start bringing other people on. And I think you need to start looking ahead as an entrepreneur. You need to start looking ahead and understand when, what, who those people are, what skills they can bring, but also specifically not just to have them there on the org chart, just check the box and say, now I have a CFO. Now I have a operations director. Like, but actually understanding what they need to do and when that time is right. Because there was a lot of work that we needed to do that we were quite capable of doing before we expanded and had anybody else come in onto our org chart. You know, And in addition to that, as a family, we're, we're paying for things ourselves. We're doing a lot of volunteer sweat labor, equity, you know, sweat equity. So it's, there's a time there. But even if you had the money, you know, bringing someone on too early can be actually uh, you know, detrimental to the progress and, and, the, and the flow of the business structure. So I think we identified I, my brother-in-law, who is my my chief development officer right now, he's brilliant. And I always knew that I wanted to bring him on. He was working at the time for IBM. He was running the Pacific Coast, a big, big project. And I had already told him, you know, at some point, one day I'm going to need you, but not yet. You know, I need, we need to still lay some foundation. We've got work to do. But one day I'm going to need you. And he was like, okay, yeah, no, that's great. You know, and listening to the family story, but not, again, not paying too much attention to the details. And then at one point in time, about 2015, I reached out and said, now I need you on board. And he dropped his big, you know, corporate job and he came over, worked for free for a couple of years with me. And I said, I need to build this now with you to something that we can bring on investment and really start creating the commercial structure for this. Well, now we're ready to go. So, it, you know, that was a pivotal moment, bringing on that area of specialty, that that type of uh, genius that I didn't have. And so we worked very well together, very complimentary on that. And it just really expanded our, our capacity and got us ready. I think that the only the kind of the, the other time that was really pivotal for us is we were actually uh, being, I guess, courted or involved in uh, some groups out of the Cayman Islands who saw the capacity for this science we had to be this massive global game changer. They did a third party valuation, gave us 600 million US valuation on, on us. And we're, you know, way early in the process, hadn't done a, a new trial yet. And, and, uh, and so we, we actually worked with some groups over there for about a year and a half, kind of, it was an incredible learning. We really evolved and, and understood kind of some of the global elements and dynamics. But at that point, we decided that we needed to come back into Canada and raise money and raise our seed round it more aligned with the communities that we were from and that we wanted to work and wanted to serve. And so that pivot, although we have very rich relationships from that period of time and a tremendous amount of learning, I wouldn't trade it for anything. At the time, I probably would have traded it, but I wouldn't trade that learning experience for anything. I think that's one of the, the benefits of being persistent and, and having some longevity in your project is you collect these experiences along the way, this value, and you build it into your next layer of decision-making. But when we came back to Canada and we started our first external capital raise initiatives, it just felt like it was the right fit. We, we went back to what we believed was the right path, fit with the model we knew would work. And then we came out to our communities and said, hey, we're raising money now and we want to build partnerships and bring people on board. And at 2017, 2018 is when we really started bringing on both new investment from outside the family, but also developing partnerships with with other folks in our, in our local communities. And uh, it was really a, a game changer for us. 
I mean, your recount of the early days um, at Saimar really highlights the classical or classic entrepreneur spirit, which is, you know, really navigating uncertainties with determination and vision, which is a narrative that many of our listeners can find both relatable and inspiring. Mm-hmm. Now, at the heart of Saimar is a groundbreaking scientific discovery. Now, could you, uh, you know, uh, make, give us a basic understanding of the science behind Saimar, particularly the role of hepatillin in combating type 2 diabetes? You bet. So keep it real simple. It's actually a pretty, you know, if you if you take away all the layers and and the details, it it is a pretty simple story. So basically, when we eat when we eat a meal, our body takes in a, a variety of nutrients, and there's always a, a you know a, a sugar load basically, you know, in in some format. You're getting this this load of sugar in, in the blood, and it has to be stored in in either fat or muscle in the body. I'm very I'm simplifying things, but you know, some of it gets used right away in that. But otherwise, you've got this this load, right? These nutrients that need to be stored somewhere and We've always understood from over the last 102 years since since insulin was, you know, identified back in Toronto as a Canadian, another Canadian story, right, that insulin is responsible for most of that nutrient partitioning and that, that it's really action through insulin that takes that sugar load out of the blood and stores it away in the body and, and processes and such. And so what happened in my father's lab, because he's actually a focus on hepat- hepatic research, he was a he was actually the fellow that discovered the, the signaling mechanisms that allowed the river the liver to regenerate when you take a portion of your liver out and donate to someone else it actually will grow back in that other person's body to the right size and yours will grow back it's a fascinating story so that's actually where he made this kind of almost by accident discovery he was manipulating the liver and, and cutting some of the parasympathetic nerves and the signals and they were becoming these the subjects were becoming type 2 diabetic and so that didn't make any sense right and and the whole metabolic system shifted and and there was this major dysfunction that he discovered so he needed to look at what that looked like so after after some you know digging he realized that there's actually another hormone that works alongside insulin so insulin's coming from the from the pancreas and a type 1 diabetic is needing more insulin but what we've been able to demonstrate is that a type 2 diabetic is actually missing this other hormone we've named hepatillin and it comes from the liver so in a healthy body nutrient partitioning is managed through insulin action and hepatillin action and insulin stores in fat and hepatillin stores in muscle and in a healthy body, about two-thirds of the nutrient partitioning is actually occurring due to a paddling action. And that's why when we're young and, and when we're healthy, even as we age, and we all do, our, our body composition, you know, starts moving away from that lean muscle to towards more, more fat, you know, as far mm-hmm. as a ratio. And we start losing a paddling action over time and insulin action starts to, to kind of compensate. But what we've also shown is that it's the lifestyle damage that's occurring to us. So the constant sugar in, in, intake, constant uh, stress, and chronic uh, stress and trauma, and the sedentary lifestyle that we have actually really has an impact on a paddling action over quite a short amount of time, actually. It's, it's quite dramatic. So as you lose a paddling action, insulin action starts to compensate. And that's okay for a while. But what we're seeing is that there's a movement away from muscle to fat. And the second thing that we understand is that removing glucose from the blood through insulin pathway and storing fat is also highly inflammatory. So the free radical damage that's occurring is you do that means that's why the type two diabetic is often experiencing or could certainly experience, you know, 
eye damage, you know, wound healing. We, we, there's about 20 amputations a day in Canada mm-hmm. due to lower limb complications and over 200 a day in the U.S. Like, I mean, these are really significant and urgent problems that we're facing. And so if you're just pushing everything, every, uh, all your glucose load, your nutrient partitioning through the insulin pathway, you can see there's a real problem. So kind of in summary, what we like to say to people is, you know, based on a paddle in action, what we're showing is that a type one diabetic needs insulin, right? They're not producing it or not producing enough, certainly from the pancreas, but a type two diabetic, typically what they're missing is hepatolin. And so our whole, our whole purpose, our whole mission is to ensure that first of all, we share the science that we, that we help make a paradigm change because it's going to make a big difference in how we understand, how we treat and how we, you know, overall manage, not just the physiological issue of, you know, your 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 nutrient imbalance and your metabolic challenge of low hepatolin, but also the systems that got us there in the first place. So why are people dealing with trauma and and stress and and mental health issues? Why are why are there food security issues? Why are why are some places it's it's easier to get a, a glass of pop than it is a glass of clean water, you know, mm-hmm. and the different populations that that's disproportionately affecting. So those are a lot of the partnerships and grassroots pieces that we're working on. But really the core of it is there's a scientific paradigm that needs to change. We've got a really solid platform and we're designing a, a suite of products that can participate as the medical intervention alongside the grassroots lifestyle interventions that we think are also so important to tackle this from a holistic perspective. And this is this is quite informative. Thank you, Meg. And thank you for the overview as well. Just curious, has this science been published? And if it has, like what has been the scientific community's response to this? So the science, so my father's got over 215 peer-reviewed publications in his name. About 60 of them are due, are, are, are focused on the Hepatolin story. In 2023, in March, uh, last year, we published a, a big review in one of the large Canadian journals, a review of the Hepatolin science over the, over the years and also the kind of formal naming of the hormone. So yeah, it's, it's been published quite a, quite a bit. He's a very heavily cited scientist. He's had some collaborations as well in the U.S. and over in Portugal on those projects. And, you know, the question of, you know, how is it, how is it gone? I mean, this is something that we've seen, and I've studied this uh, since I've been involved in, in, in taking on this role in, in Symar is really understanding how paradigms do change. And, you know, we look at most significant I guess, paradigm sh- shifts that challenge our current understanding, something that's, especially when it's quite entrenched and there's a large following, and especially if there's a multi-trillion dollar industry that's based on it. When you start pushing on that and and starting to share, even if you've got data on it, there's a lot of resistance when you start. And that's just normal. I mean, you look at any of the major, and we're not talking about science here necessarily either, but if you look at any major businesses that are out there that are, that are really significantly kind of changing how things are done, like Airbnb, for example, they were, they were told that they were, when they first started looking for investment, they were told there's really no market for that. It wouldn't work. It doesn't make sense. Right. And I mean, this is something you see all the time. So it takes time to, you know, you have to be thorough. You have to stick with it. You have to do another experiment, you know, another, you know, trials and you have to, you know, publish data and, and be open and you have to be patient. Right. And eventually people get on board and they start getting excited about it. So when I think what happens is when people take the time to really look at the data, look at the science and talk to the right people, everybody's excited about what we're doing here. And I think the push right now for us is to ensure that the commercial structure we've developed is going to be successful at moving the products now through the regulatory pathway out to market. You know, it's one thing to have science that says this is new and different and we're going to change the world. But if you don't actually have a product that fits into the current, you know, 
industry paradigm and is accessible to people and, and is effective, then you're you're not really going to be able to achieve your mission. If your mission is to actually solve the problem and, you know, eradicate the disease set and look at the systems that got us there, you know, there's a lot of moving parts that need to be aligned. So that's really where our focus is now is the science is solid. You know, we continue building on the science. We still have work to do to continue to evolve it. But right now our focus is really on moving products through the regulatory pathway so we can get it out there to people as soon as we can, because people need they need a proper medical intervention. Right now, we're moving towards over 600 million people that are fully diagnosed type 2 diabetics. And probably our total addressable markets, about half the world's population, if you look at metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, and now obesity being such a big focus, it's all due to an imbalance in nutrient partitioning between insulin and hepatolin. And so mm-hmm. for us, like this is an urgent problem, and we have a we're holding the, the, the solution in our hand. And so it, it's incredibly important that we stay focused and, and keep moving out to market with something tangible that can actually make a difference. Now, understanding the science behind Simor really offers a glimpse into the potential future of diabetes treatment and the role of innovation that, uh, you know, innovative SMEs in, in driving medical breakthroughs. Now, <clears throat> make, uh, you know, the biotech industry is quite competitive, like with big pharma companies often dominating the landscape. What challenges and opportunities does Simar face in an industry where big pharma companies are always on the lookout for promising innovations? Well, I think big farmers are looking out for proven innovations. I'm not sure they're looking out necessarily for promising innovations. They're, they're, they, they're actually surprisingly risk adverse. They'd rather pay 10 times a licensing fee on something that's moved another few steps towards the commercial market than to get involved in early stage innovation. That's my experience. And so that was, that was a real lesson for us because again, that's what my father assumed would happen in the old days was, Hey, we've got this breakthrough. It's going to take another, you know, 10, 15 years of work to get it to market, but let's start working together. And they said, no, 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 you go back and keep moving. When you do your own thing, let's keep talking, right? They want to be first in the room when you get that next data set and such. And there are amazing people working in pharma that are trying to do good things. But overall, my experience has been that it's not so much about innovation. It's, it's more about finding those partners. And that's really where the kind of small, the small biotech has a role is that it is about quick iterations to find some solutions to some certain problems and and bring some products into these kind of you know viable uh, first round options and then starting to work with partners down the road and 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 having those conversations you know four five six years before they become structured and formal so that you know what they're looking for. And that's what we've been doing. We've been talking to the largest pharma and the space for over a decade and have very strong relationships with them in terms of what they understand they, they're looking for and, and what they what they need. Although there's been a major pivot and shift in the last three, four years around type, moving away from type two and, and really focusing on obesity, weight loss, and some of those things that, you know, the markets really changed in the last five, six years with COVID that there was a lot of shifts that we had to, you know, keep up with. And so it's it's actually, you know, an interesting time to be bringing something that is we consider to be very innovative, but mm-hmm. having a couple more steps to go before we become really relevant to a pharma. You know, once you've done a phase two B and a three, then you're starting to get into your collaborative research agreement conversations and looking at early licensing and, and things like that. But, you know, it takes time. And again, I think that's one of the values of being around a long, a long time is it you know, people don't perceive you as a fly by night or kind of a, you know, the, the, the current favorite color of the, of the month. It's, you know, we've been around a long time and we're not, we're not going anywhere and we know what our path is. And I think from a business side as well, it's important to make sure that you know, that you can be independent as long as you want so that you're never, 
you know, at the mercy of someone coming in and giving you undesirable terms or, you know, taking something and then not getting it to market. I mean, there's all kinds of kind of conspiracy theory ideas that are probably a little closer to the truth than what we might've thought when we first started this. You know, I've heard some really crazy things come back and uh, comments right. from people. And so anyways, you know, this is our, this is, this is the way we, we move forward, but you know, at some point we will partner, but right now we're also getting a lot of traction with partners that aren't necessarily traditional pharma, but mm -hmm. are involved in health and wellness, even, you know, groups that are looking at how long can we be healthy over the period of our lives and looking at our products, early stage screening, nutraceutical preventative, and then a reversal of this, this chronic state, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to just go down the path of traditional pharma. Traditional pharma is good at manufacturing and scaling and distribution and marketing and such early stage innovation. There's a little pocket there that we get to fill. Right, right. Uh, we, uh, we love the positive outlook, Megan, to build onto this a little bit more. What safeguards have you put in place to maintain Symar's independence and how do you focus on your mission? Yeah, well, everything we do is based on our mission. And I know, you know, as an entrepreneur and, you know, leadership coach in the past and consultant and such, I know that's always part of the, you know, chapter one, you know, build your mission and it becomes, but really it's true. And I think if you have a strong enough mission and you, and you keep in, in, in making sure it's integrated into everything you do, it becomes your North Star you look at it and say, does this fit, right? Which I, for us, that's what allowed us to, to take on this, this challenge, this multi-generation mission, maybe looking at it slightly differently because the purpose of our existence as, as a company and as a team is to solve the problem. It's not about to sell a pill. Now, pills and other devices and such and the medical interventions, those are part of the solution because the current paradigm's not working. We know that. But it can't be the only solution. And I don't want a second generation of kids or, or young people to need a pill. I don't want to be selling, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. I don't want someone to, to need our, our, our pill. We want to understand the problem differently and approach it holistically so we can solve it and move forward in a sustainable way. So that's a, a big part of it for us is to make sure we're building community as we go. We started a podcast a couple of years ago to build a, a base of supporters to, you know, again, we're trying to educate people on a new paradigm and we're trying to encourage people to take control of their own wellness and health and, and be responsible for that. So part of it is that we're talking about what that looks like and talking about innovation and, and that, and we're building a fan base, right? As a business, we're building a fan base. So we're building a fan base, not just to be able to sell product or take on investors, right? Which is also part of the part of the design, but it's also building a fan base that can never go away. So the, you know, the more people know about Hepatolin and the more people hear the story and the more entrenched it is in the, in the scientific, you know, lexicon, the, the more we can't be hidden, we can't be bought, we can't be dismissed. And that's a big part of how we operate. So I mean, in addition to that, we've got patents in multiple countries. We have a very strong IP portfolio. We're, we're following all the, the regular business you know, rules, but right. we're doing things a little differently as we go as well. So it's, it's really building a very strong momentum. Absolutely. No, your, your, your perspective on navigating the biotech industry really underscores the delicate balance between, you know, innovation, competition and collaboration, really highlighting a path forward to or for SMEs in, in healthcare. Now, make the journey from discovery to market is, is a long one in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, for someone with diabetes or is at risk, what is a timeline for Symar's products to become available and what are the next steps? 
Well, we have a, a structure called the Wellness Transformation Network, and that is a, a grassroots initiative that will allow us to run clinical trials with partnering communities. And so if you're lucky to be in one of those communities, you'll have access early. But in terms of the larger market and general markets, the nutraceutical will be available in the next couple of years. We have a license to sell in Canada. We're actually making a new set of inventory for that and moving those to, to clinical trials as well. We want to make a paddling-based claims on the on the labels, and so we need to to collect some additional data. But at the same time, we'll be making those uh, nutraceuticals available exclusively to our investor group. So that's one way we can get it out there early as a private company. We can make it available to our investors. But then following that, we'll be going out back out to market and, and going to Canada and US. And we've got a lot of international interest in those as well. So the, in the next few years, we'll be rolling that out in mainstream. The diagnostic will be rolling out the next couple of years as well, going through, you know, starting in clinics and such, and then and then starting to move out into potentially some home-based kits and and uh, community-based programs. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the therapeutic is, it's a little bit of a longer path. It is a pharmaceutical itself. We, we are, we are raising money right now to do a two, a phase two B. So that's part of our use of proceeds. And so we need to get that data out the door and then there'll be a phase three and then it'll, you know, it'll take some time. It, it, it'll need to get out to market. We're probably looking four or five years, you know, at the shortest timeline for the therapeutic, the pill you take before you eat, it reverses the type two diabetic state uh, by, re by re allowing the body to release a paddling. And then the synthetic hormone itself, there's a lot of work still to be done on that. We've got some exciting progress, but it's a, it's a, it's a synthetic hormone. It takes time, likely be partnering with some pretty sophisticated groups moving forward on that side as well. So, you know, with our story, we don't just have one product or one symptom. We're trying to solve the problem from a kind of the, the, the not just grassroots in the community, but we're actually trying to, I feel like grassroots in the body, we're really trying to tackle it from a mechanistic perspective, mm -hmm. the, the underlying issue there. So we're really, we're trying to build these uh, product suite that will help us not only screen it and prevent it, but also, you know, reverse it. So each one has its own little path, but we're getting there, you know, and it's going to be, it, you know, part of it is, and this speaks to your audience around raising money, is it's funded related. Right? right. If we, if we, if, if funding trickles in and you know, you know, you can only one, one, one trial at a time and they have to be done in a small facility that can only take a person every day versus you've got multiple trials running at the same time. You have multiple locations or you've got a facility that's a little larger. You can take 10 people a day. So it really is about can we get the funding in place in order to really accelerate this to market as fast as we can? And that, that's a big part of our push right now. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, uh, Meg, how does this timeline really compare to the traditional path for drug development and approval? We're on the same track that most most groups are. I mean, it takes uh, it takes years to get through the scientific side of things, the preclinical studies. I mean, some. I mean, it depends on what you're working on, but it can take you know 20 years to to understand what you have and and start developing something that might look like a commercial product. Right? Uh, it, it could take a lot a lot a lot faster if depending on the scenario. But we you know we're certainly on the on the right track for that. And then you know it takes it takes five six years to get through clinical trials typically. And again, it depends on how much money you have and what the resources are. It can take 15 years to get through a trials program. If you have setbacks along the way and, you know, depending on the jurisdiction you're working in, some some places take longer to, you know, even get ethical approval for versus other jurisdictions. So re it's it's really hard to put everybody in the same, but, it, but I tell you right now, from a breakthrough to market, you're looking at, you know, a couple decades typically, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and several hundred million dollars of, and, and you, and, and you, and a group that's not going to quit. Right. I mean, that's, right. that's the big thing is it's doable, but you have to have a team that's not going to quit. You have to have a team that understands and learns along the way and evolves and, you know, and, and then, and then moves forward as, as, as it needs to happen with the end being 
you know, the only, the only time they're going to take a breath and take a pause is when you actually get the, get the job done. Absolutely. You know, the roadmap to bringing a medical breakthrough to market is a, is a fraught with challenges, but your explanation make, it just sheds light on the dedication and perseverance required to make a global impact, really. Now, one of the things that we touched based on very early in this conversation was community support, which mm. is, you know, a testament to a company's mission and impact. Can you share more about the initial 2.6 million raised from local investors in, in, in Dauphin? And how does this, what does this level of support signify, uh, signify for Simon? Well, the, so it, it's part of our founding story then. So I'll, I'll pick up where I left off originally. So coming back into Canada and and going back to the community of folks that I've been working with for my whole life and my career in different iterations. And uh, we invited a group of folks to come to the local movie theater in Dauphin. And we had, I think, 23 people show up and we said, hey, you know, I've been working on this for over 10 years. I haven't told anybody because it wasn't really ready to share yet, but now we're ready and we're hoping to, you know, get some people on board and really presented what our mission was, presented what we thought our path was to market. And, you know, obviously you have to be very clear about the risks, you know, lots of risks along the way, but also the potential to be something that's a game changer globally. And there's not a lot of things in life that come up. I mean, we can influence people every day and and ensure that the experience people have with us is positive and we can make lots of changes at that level, you know, the things we can control. And that's critical to being, you know, the best we can be as as humans and as leaders. But this is something that, that really goes beyond that and that we can impact, you know, millions, millions of people, billions of people. And so that was something that really spoke to the folks that that we had invited there. So we weren't just there for money. We were there for to help build a community of investors that were going to support us and were really aligned with our mission. So that's why I think we were so successful is that everybody in the room, you know, decided to come in and invest in, in the company. And then we build out several more rounds and raise some more money. But I mean, at that stage with, you know, and be, now before this next round, we're working on what, about a hundred investors involved. And, you know, I'd say about 80% of them are from the Parkland region and the Western Manitoba. And it's because it's people that have worked with us for years, right? You you work with someone for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, and you believe that if they say they're going to do something, I mean, you've got some some experience whether they're going to do it or not, you know, what whether or not they've got the ability to persist through challenges. And and so I think it was leveraging the relationships that we've been building previously in our whole careers. And people really put their trust in us and decided we want to be part of this. We want to support it. And if we can do it from the parkland mm-hmm. and be a global game changer from a small community, you know, three hours outside the capital of the province, hey, let's 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 go for it. Right. So there's a bit of a leap, right? The investors, there's a there's a leap for entrepreneurs, but there's a leap for investors as well at that stage. And you got to find the right fit. But you build community and it's a community that will that will blow you up. It'll hold you up and they'll keep pushing you forward. Has to be the right group. Now, this not only highlights the power of local support, but also the innovative approaches SMEs can take in raising capital. Now, Mick, how has this how has the ability to sell shares to both Americans and Canadians through the regulation A plus changed the game for Simar? Well, you know, we went through the same stages everybody else, you know, explores. You know, we did our we did our bootstrapping, we did our seed round, we did a bridge round, we started into a series A, and we thought we're gonna really need to go out to the big institutional investors. We're probably gonna have to compromise a bit and work on their timelines and everybody challenges, you know, your structure and valuation, your team and all those kinds of things. And that's fine. That's part of the that's part of the process. But it, you know, when you've when you're following a North Star and you know you've got a path. It, it it can be frustrating to consider that you're going to really have to compromise on a lot of those things that you spent, you know, five, six years or, or 10, 13 years in our, in our case, you know, building. And so one of our, and this goes back to building community. So one of our 500,000 fan base fans out of our podcast group had called us up and we often would get 
people calling us and saying, hey, hey, I love your podcast. I love what you're doing. I, I'd like to invest in Symar. And we've had to say no. I mean, I've turned away $5,000, $10,000, $20,000, and $50,000 checks from people in the past because, you know, it's at that point, it was still accredited investors only institutional investors, and the bar was quite high, $100,000 or $200,000 or more, depending on the round we were doing. And so it was very limiting, right? And so that was also very frustrating for not only the people that want to support us and our fans, but also as a company, you know, raising money. It's really difficult to turn money away with people that are aligned with your vision, right? So that was frustrating. So we found this Regulation A+, SEC-regulated offering in the in the States. And it was this podcast a fan that said, you should look at this. I'll come in right now in your Series A. Here's a check. Well, it didn't, it, that doesn't take, it doesn't happen that quick, but eventually, right? And once coming in and be an investor, but they said, you should take a look at this. It really fits with your culture and your values. So we started that process about two years ago. And boy, mm-hmm. there was a lot of learning along the way. It was, it was like pushing a, a string uphill on a lot of fronts. A lot of things took a lot more time than what everybody expected. And we were the first Canadian company to approach, sorry, first Manitoba company to approach the SEC and say, we'd like to do an offering in the U.S. using this Regulation A+. We had to go and work with Manitoba Securities. And, you know, there's all kinds of hurdles. And anyway, so we're the first Canadian company to be able to offer in from Manitoba into the U.S. And at the same time, we registered in nine provinces in Canada in order to be able to take investment from retail level investors from the U.S. internationally and from Canada. And so going back to your question, what does it mean to us? It really, it's a democratization of the investment. This is something that we're pre-IPO. This is considered to be a public offering, but it's not a traditional public offering. We stay as a private company and we manage the shares and the sales and such on our own through our own transfer agent, broker dealer and such. But you know, this is an opportunity for us to now go back to those people and say, hey, do you remember when you reached out and said you wanted people? you know, part of the journey you want to experience and maybe experience some really amazing financial returns. If this thing, you know, goes the way you guys are planning it. Hey, now we can go back and say, I can take $500. I can take, you know, uh, 5,000 or $10,000. I can still take the larger checks and we, and, and we, and we, and we have those that will, will start coming in. But, you know, our first our first week we've been, we've been open now and, you know, we're getting the, we're getting the 500s and the 5,000 and the $10,000 checks coming in and people are reaching out to us and saying, oh my gosh, this is so great that we can participate. I'm so excited to be part of the journey. You know, when I ask people what drove them, they say, well, we like the way you operate. We're excited about the science. We want to be part of the mission. And if you guys, and if your team can make, make a return on this, we'd also obviously be very happy about that. But let's, we want to be part of this exciting journey that you're on and, and, and this allows people to participate. So we're pretty pleased that we found a structure that we can go and, and be very open about the invitation to come and join us and, and, and invest in, in our, in our purpose and our mission and, and the way we want to operate as a business. Thank you, Meg, for highlighting these strategic funding avenues, which can particularly help those that are aspiring to make a difference in the healthcare and biotech sectors, uh, for sure. But before we wrap up today's enlightening conversation, you know, we'd, we'd greatly appreciate your sharing, you sharing a piece of advice for our entrepreneurial listeners. Now, given the unique intersection of innovation, science, and business in your journey, what guidance would you offer to those embarking on their own entrepreneurial paths, especially in sectors as challenging and impactful as biotech and healthcare? Well, that's a that's a tough question. I think we need a whole episode just to answer that. <laughs> I, you know, I think the wording that you're using, you know, innovation. Obviously, we need it needs to be something different and unique. It needs to be something people need. Like, there's all the standard kind of entrepreneurial pieces. You know, what pain are you taking away, and is there a market fit? All those all those pieces, and obviously, that's all real and true. And I think we have that very strong position on, on all those fronts. But I think for us, 
really what's allowed us to be successful in pushing hard against a lot of really challenging dynamics, especially going through COVID. And you know, we're in, we've been impacted directly as a business model, you know, by the wars and all kinds of things. We've really been working hard to get around. And I think really what's driving us from the very beginning, the reason why we started the company to right now and looking forward and it attracts the right partners is, is your mission. You need to be really clear about what you're trying to achieve. So it's one thing to have a mission and rally, but it's what are you really trying to achieve? What is the impact? impact you're trying to have on the world. And if it's not just a magic pill, but it's actually solving a problem, the pill will come if that's part of your solution, that's part of it, right? But that can't be what drives you. It can't be about the money. It can't be about the product necessarily. It's got to be about what are you trying to achieve? What is driving you forward? And then and just being really consistent with that. And, and I think the second part, and I just could go to this, once you have that North Star, it attracts the right people. And as a, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, and speaking to maybe founders here, don't be shy to bring on people that are that are A-plus people. You, you need to bring those people on at the right times and surround yourself with the right folks that can really you know, take the team to the next level. And for me, I've been incredibly lucky with that, is that we have the right North Star that's pulling us all together. But it's really about the people that I've been able to you know, gather and invite to come on board. And I just sit back and watch the work they do. And it's absolutely phenomenal. But it's that those are the superpowers. Those are the high performers that really look at the collective success, which is really about what are we trying to achieve? So mm-hmm. those are my two pieces there is, Find your vision and stick with it. Be consistent and then bring on the people that are better at you in the roles that you're missing. And that's what's going to allow you to be successful. Thank you so much, Mick, for joining us on the podcast today. And your journey with Saimar from its inception to becoming a pioneering force in the fight against type 2 diabetes exemplifies, you know, the essence of innovation, determination and the entrepreneurial spirit. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thanks, Mahina. It's been uh, great. We love telling our story and it's it's been great being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Our heartfelt thanks go to uh, Mick Lott for joining us on the podcast today. Today's discussion not only showcased the potential for SMEs to lead in global healthcare challenges, but also emphasized the importance of community support, strategic funding avenues like Regulation A+, and the power of a solid scientific foundation. Mick's advice to remain resilient, innovative, and community-focused is a guiding light for entrepreneurs facing the myriad of challenges and opportunities presented by today's business landscape. We would like to extend our gratitude to our partners, exclusive buying partner RBC, exclusive shipping partner UPS, and our exclusive accounting software partner Zero for their unwavering support of this platform. Their partnership really enables us to bring forward the stories, challenges, and successes that define Canada's SME sector. To our dedicated listeners, we hope that today's episode has inspired you to pursue your entrepreneurial aspirations with renewed vigor and insight. And the journey may be fraught with challenges, but the potential to stay affect meaningful change and achieve remarkable success is immense. So we encourage you to stay connected, informed, and inspired by subscribing to the Canadian SME Small Business Magazine through our official website at canadiansme.ca. Thank you for joining joining us and your engagement and support will fuel our mission to empower and uplift the small business community across Canada. Join us next time as we continue to explore the stories, insights and advice that shape the Canadian SME landscape. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Canadian SME Small Business Podcast. Your support fuels our passion for empowering Canadian businesses. Don't miss out on our next episode filled with fresh perspectives and actionable strategies. Subscribe at canadiansme.ca and be part of a community that's shaping the future of Canadian business. Until next time, keep innovating, growing, and making a difference.